not going to cry. I'm not going to cry. Okay. All right, we got a couple things I want, Jamie wanted me to remind you guys of. Um, First off, Robin's, uh, Robin Workman's surgery was a success. She came out great. She's recovering well. Um, Anybody that can help the family and uh, supply a meal for them, um, let us know, let me know, let Pastor Jamie know, and we'll work that out. Um, Also, keep in mind, Kathy Armistead is having surgery this week, so let's keep her in our prayers this week. I'm not sure exactly what surgery she's having, but no surgery is a good surgery. In my book, next Sunday, we will have communion, and Jamie wanted me to remind you that he will be back. So while the cat's away, the mice will play. <laughs> oh, man. <clears throat> so as always, anytime I get the, to get to be in the pulpit, I want to make sure and give due diligence and thank Jamie and Lisa again for trusting me to be here. This is no small, small task. It's, um, it's daunting. It, uh, man, I tell you what, if you've ever been attacked this week, I was attacked. Anything that could try to get me to steer away from the message of love, it tried to this week. Even this morning, with all the technical difficulties we had. <clears throat> Everybody pray for Pro Presenter. Anyway, I also want to thank this beautiful woman sitting next to me, because without putting up with my crap, we wouldn't be here today to share this story. I also want to thank her, because, well, look at her. I'm a lucky, lucky fella. Um... We're going to start off in Colossians this morning. <clears throat> this, this section of Scripture basically embodies the whole thing. Now, get prepared. There's going to be an onslaught of Scriptures. I don't expect you to remember them all, write them all down, but I'm going to throw them at you as fast as I can. So if you can't keep up, that's fine. I will share my notes. Also, everything that I'm going to talk about today, I have written in a story. Um, um, from the very beginning of my understanding of Christ until today, basically. So if anybody wants to know more, wants to know more details, I'm happy to share those things, but I also want to keep it PG here this morning, okay? So I'm trusting Holy Spirit to guide me. I've got a whole slew of notes per usual. I don't know if we'll get through all of them. This is still the condensed Cliff Notes version of this story. So if you want to know it all, I can happily tell you or give you that. There is no secret hidden. So Colossians 1, 13, 14, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. That's a big one for me. I'd forgotten about it and then came back across it as I I was studying this week, and uh, it wrecked me. In the best way. How many people uh, watch the devotions this week? That's not nearly enough. You guys are all in trouble. They're, they're archived. They're archived. Go back and watch them. Um, that section of scripture embodies everything we talked about this week. So let's go to the Father in prayer. Father, I thank you that we get to be here in front of these beautiful people and share our story. Father, I ask that you keep our mouths from going too dry. Keep the nerves down as possibly as low as you possibly can because this is very well one of the scariest things we'll ever do. Father, we're thankful for you. Whoever hears this today that needs it, Father, I pray that this wrecks them as much as it has me. In Jesus' name, 
we pray. Amen. So real quick, we're going to blast through some things and kind of recap where we were last week in case you missed it, just so we can set the tone for today. We, we talked about love. What is love? Is it a noun or is it a verb? We talked about the culture of love. Say again. It is both. We're f- focusing on the verb aspect today. <clears throat> is it possible to stay in love? Now that's with not only your person, but also with the Father. And we talked about the cultural versus spiritual. I don't know if we have those graphics. We don't necessarily have to put them up. We got the pyramids. Remember the pyramids that were not in the center. We've got the spiritual pyramid. It has the big spiritual bottom, the base. We start in the spiritual. We move into the social. Then we move into the interpersonal, then the emotional. And then we can step further into the marriage phase. And then the next one, the topsy-turvy, upside-down triangle, Remember, we talked about it focuses on one thing, the point, ourselves. It only has room for one at the bottom. So let's move into the new thoughts and ideas for this morning. I'm going to teach really quick so we can get to the story and we can share the process. So hold on. Here we go. All right. What are our new ideas? What do we do when we fall out of love? And I've got in my notes the word fall in quotation marks. Because that looks like so many different things. It can literally be a fall. It can literally be a brokenness. We talked about what happens when we stop being high on the other person. We go into that withdrawal. What happens when that happens? How do we move forward through that? Today, we're going to see just how. What do we do when we broke it? What do we do when we're the one that caused the failure? What do we do when we're the one that, for the most part, jumped right up and caused Not so much a beautiful mess. And then what do we do when we've been hurt? So let's talk about something. Gaps. There's gaps. How how many of you know that there's a gap in a relationship? There's a hole. There's spaces. Anybody know what those gaps are? We can move on to the next thing if you can find it. We're having ProPresenter crashed on us this morning, so we're using something brand new, brand new piece of software we've never used for Sunday morning. And here we use it for the live feed, so... Bear with us. If it's not up there, that's fine. There's gaps in every relationship. The space that gap is called the space. The space that gap is 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 the difference between expectation versus reality, right? What we expect to happen with the relationship between two people and what actually happens. Um, see, we talked about it last week. We have a fairy tale view because of culture as what a relationship should look like. I feel like they should always be what we see in those rom-coms with uh, Matthew McConaughey and Jennifer Lopez. It's always happy, happy, happy. There's a little bit of little bit of, of a struggle, and then in the end, they love each other for the rest of their lives, right? It doesn't matter. It's rinse and repeat. It's the same format. Every movie that involves another woman that Matthew McConaughey's been in that's got some romance in it is the same exact formula. I know that because I read his book, and he talks about how much it was repetitive. That's basically what we've been programmed to see within our marriages and our relationships, not only uh, romantic, but platonic also. We also have to remember that no two people are exactly the same in their wants and their needs, right? Her, Her view on what our marriage was going to be was completely different of my view of what our marriage was going to be 20 years ago. Her view of what our relationship was was completely different than what my view of what our relationship was on those small few months before we got married. We'll share, I'll share more about that here in a little bit. 
So what do we do when the gaps come? We've got two choices. We can either choose to believe the best about that situation and put into practice the things we've learned from last week, or we can believe the worst. When we're dealing with deceit and anger and hurt, we can either believe the best in the person in front of us, or we can believe the worst. We can believe the best and choose love and action and choose to try to understand over anger, or we can believe the worst and move directly into a situation that causes harm not only for them, but ourselves. And it could get as bad as physical harm. We have lots of conflicts. You can't scroll through social media and not find somebody physically fighting somebody else. This is because our expectations versus the reality have changed so much. Here's the cool thing. We're going to come back to uh, 1 Corinthians 13.4. This embodies everything we've talked about. So in those gaps, 1 Corinthians 13.4 kind of wants to stomp in and fill them up. So from 13.4 to roughly 6, love is patient, kind, not envious, not proud, not dishonorable, nor self-seeking, not easily angered, nor keeps record of wrong. That's still the hard one. Keeps no record of wrong. Now, that paints a picture of what love is and what love can be, but it doesn't necessarily fill the gaps. It gives us a blueprint and a roadmap as to what the fairy tale of love could be, but it doesn't necessarily give us the answers on how to act that love out. When we get to verse 7, we get our answers. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. And then, again, in the verse 8, love never fails. So this is where we get into a situation where our impulses battle our responses. Or let me, let me rephrase that. Where our impulses directly, um, what's the right word? You've got a microphone, too. You can hold it up. Don't be scared. When, when our impulses uh, direct our responses, um, Oh, man, this is going to be a good one. When our impulses take over, for instance, one of the things I've battled my whole life is anger. My impulses want to direct me to be anger in physical form very quick, right? Uh, if, if, If we don't have a hold of our impulses, we don't have control of our responses. So we have choices, Like I said a minute ago, we have choices when these gaps come up. We can either believe the best or believe the worst. We can either act in the best interest or act in the worst interest. We can either choose to walk away from love or protect love. We can either choose to doubt love, to doubt the other person, or trust love and trust the other person. We can choose to give up hope. Or we can choose to lean on hope. Or we can choose to just give up completely. Or we can choose to persevere. So this is where it gets hard. We've kind of set a a, a spiritual foundation on our pyramid of kind of where we should be. So now I'm going to tell you about my point, about my pyramid being flipped upside down. I'm going to tell you a story about being so wrapped up in myself that there's no reason other than Jesus Christ that we're sitting in front of you today married. 
I'm going to do my best to keep the tears at bay, not puke. See, I grew up in a situation where I was taught from a very young age that it's not about anybody else but myself. Now, I don't remember, but I was reading a study that said there was so there was this long list of attributes: loving, caring, kindness, understanding basically the fruits of the Spirit that are needed in a home as a child grows up for a child to come out looking to help serve other people and not just themselves. Subliminally, I was taught that my wants and needs were the most important. I was the favorite of all the kids. My grandparents basically raised me for a long time, and for about seven years of my life, They were a big part of that, and they loved me dearly above everybody else, and they put me first in everything, and that made me a selfish little boy, okay? That created ideals and expectations that I needed to have my way in everything that I did. So fast forward into young adulthood. My parents had a broken relationship numerous times. I grew up not in a, in, in, a, in a nuclear household where everything was solid and firm. It wasn't ingrained to me that you stayed with the same person for the rest of your life or that you even tried. Even though I saw that in my grandparents on both sides, I was surrounded by deceit and divorce. So I learned that to be the expectation. What's the point? Why try? Have some fun and move on. The biggest thing was I didn't understand what love was. I didn't understand the cultural view of love because I didn't even get that right, but I definitely didn't understand the biblical view of love. I even grew up in the church, and you talk about some fun stuff, one side free will Baptist and the other side Methodist. I loved them both very much, but I was a confused little man. And if you guys want to read the the little book that I wrote, that explains all that in grave detail. the biggest thing was, and thank you, Jesus, this has been changed and rectified. I didn't understand the love of a father. I didn't have a firm foundation of a father in my life. My grandfather raised me, really painted into me. And when my dad came back around, we didn't have the best relationship. When my grandfather died at the age of 17, I was a broken mess, and that started a downward spiral. I could care less about anything in this world because the one person that meant everything to me was now gone. And I can remember sitting 17 years old, stoned out of my gourd, having drinking, drank a gallon of vodka legitimately, not able to process that I just lost the most important thing in my life. And from that point on, the most important thing became me. That was it. But even further, I didn't know how to be loved by a father. So later on in my story, as I started to really dig in Jesus, to really dig in to God, to really dig into the Holy Spirit, I didn't understand that reckless love that he was lavishing over me. I didn't understand that he was leaving the 99 every moment of every day to come find me. I couldn't grasp that because I didn't deserve it. I hadn't done anything to get it. Why me? I was legitimately 
in my mind, the worst thing you could ever find. So fast forward just a few years after the death of my grandfather, I meet this woman. I'd already been engaged, had numerous, we have to be platonic, we have to be not platonic, we have to be uh, G-rated, lots of partners. (laughs) I was programmed that that was a drug, and I became quickly addicted to it. With that, I became an addiction to lust. With that came an addiction to pornography. And alcohol and drugs. Now, the alcohol and the drugs are things I was able to just toss away. They never really grabbed a hold of me. I would never say that I was really addicted to them, but I did let them control my life. But sex and relationships, I thrived on. So we meet. I'm 20, you're 19. We're going to, what? That's what I said, 19. And we fall in love, and we get really high on each other, and it's great. And three months later, we're engaged. And three months later, we're married. And that's been 20 years. 20 years, yeah. I've got it tattooed on my wrist, so I know. But the first 14 years of that marriage were some of the worst times we've ever had in our lives. She grew up in, in, in a family that the mother and the father really loved each other. That God came first. And the priorities were proper and everything lined out. She grew up completely understanding the love of a father. Okay. So, as we young married couple, we move around a lot. I'm working in television as a director. We're doing all these things. I get back into playing music, and I want to be famous. So I do everything I can to be famous. I'm getting offer after offer to go tour, to do all these things, but I've got this ball and chain. Now, I'm not being funny. That's legitimately what I thought. I was tied down. I had made a commitment that I couldn't keep. (laughs) So it was her fault that I couldn't take the guitar tech position with Keith Urban, that I couldn't take the big tours, that I couldn't do the things that were offered to me because I had to stay home and provide, which I didn't know how to do either. So not only was I completely wrapped up in myself, addicted to sex, lust, pornography, I loved to spend money that we didn't have. You talk about just a butthead, right? So fast forward through all that. There's just so much. We would be here for a couple days. <clears throat> I'm touring with a band. <clears throat> this, this, this was one of the most important things for me musically in my life. I got to make albums pressed on vinyl in Nashville with two of my best friends. Now, I'd done all kinds of things up to that point. I'd, and I'm not tooting my horn. This, 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 this has a foundation. So I'd been on many albums. I'd played. I'd toured. I'd NPR, world, you, you name it. Every kind of music. I'd done it all. I was living it. But I'd never got to be in a band where I got to help write, record, and be a part of the creative process, let alone with two of my best friends. So we start a band. We start rehearsing. We record an album in one of Loretta Lynn's studios. 
We press it on vinyl. We're getting radio play. I'm at the top of my life, and it's amazing. Except for one thing. I still don't understand the love of a father. We're playing on the radio. We're hearing it while we're driving from gig to gig. But another problem is my bandmates hate me because I weighed 535 pounds and I couldn't sit for five minutes without falling asleep. And every time I'd fall asleep, I had apneas so bad I died. So while I was living my dream, I was also living my nightmare. So one evening I called her from Athens, Georgia. My bandmates had taken off and left me kind of stranded. And Athens, Georgia is kind of like Morgantown if you've ever been there. It's uphill, downhill, uphill, downhill, uphill, downhill. 535 pounds don't like uphill, downhill. I was huffling and puffling. Now, for a big dude, I could get around, but not very long. Uphill, downhill, uphill, downhill. Well, they were all too uh, well imbibed to drive. So I had to go get the van. The van. We had us, my two bandmates, plus another guy that we had brought and hired to open up for us and another act that was touring with us. So we're all in our big 15-passenger van. So I go to get the van. I take the keys. I huffle and puffle and get to the van. And I'm thinking, this is great. I'm going to chill out and relax. I'm going to drive these guys around. I don't have to worry about it until it comes time to get in the driver's seat. For some reason, this van's seat didn't move. There was no levers. It was firmly bolted. It was a public transport vehicle that we'd gotten on the cheap. I couldn't fit. I couldn't drive not only to save my people, but I also couldn't drive to leave because at that point I was completely done. So I called her from Athens, Georgia, and I'm bawling, and I'm, come get me, please. Come get me. And she was going to. Now, <clears throat> keep in mind, this, this woman up to that point had dealt with me cheating on her, lying to her, not providing for her, not giving a care in the world. We had been through nearly a divorce and separation prior, years prior. I had put her through health scares, died on an operating table. <laughs> the devil has done everything he can to take me out of this world. He's tried to kill me numerous times. He's tried to turn my countenance away from the Lord every day. But he, he lost. So long story short, I get back to West Virginia, and we're getting ready to go back on tour again. <clears throat> I'm making motorcycle parts just right up the road at this, this place to kind of make ends meet as best as I can. <clears throat> I was starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel and kind of caring about my life a little bit up to this point, praying for a way out. Now, I had been at Maranatha and been through the revival. I had been in church. I was playing in churches, pretending, living a double life, and I was trying to develop a relationship with God. I was trying to write songs. I was trying to do all these things. But when you don't understand the love of a father, you just don't understand love. So... I'm about to leave. I'm at work. I'd gone in early. The band's coming to pick me up, and I feel something happening in my chest. The next thing I know, I feel my heart. It's racing. It's skipping beats. It's going crazy. I can't explain it. The next thing I know, I'm on my knees. 
and then I can't breathe, and I'm going out. So the next thing I remember is I'm in an ambulance, and I end up at General Hospital. And they tell me that I'm too big, obviously, duh, 535 pounds, you're chunky, right? You got to lose some weight. They also tell me that I'm too big to do a scan, and they want to do an exploratory catheterization just to see what's up. So they're telling me that they want to hop in my veins with a camera and go for a drive. And that was the first moment, the first moment in my life that I ever was shook to my core by the Holy Spirit. I didn't know then what I know now, and I couldn't have told you then that that's what that was, but I knew I cussed that doctor up and down that room. No way, you're not going in me. I knew I had to get home, and I had to get home quick because if I let them get into my heart, it wasn't going to be good for me. A few weeks later, I get a call from my best friend. His words forever changed my life. He said, I'm writing you a check in the entirety except for the hospital stay to pay for you to have surgery to lose weight. So, history, we're getting up to where the the real, the end all be all here. I have the surgery. They tell me I'm only going to lose 98 to 100 pounds the first year. They also tell me I'm going to be in the hospital for three days. When I woke up from the anesthesia, I didn't hurt too bad. And I literally remember opening my eyes, and the nurse poking me, wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up. And I remember hearing, literally heard it. I felt that a switch had flipped. Something changed in that instant. From that point, I had a new lease on life, and excuse me, but come hell or high water, I was going to win. I was out of the hospital in under 24 hours. I lost 330 pounds the first year. Now, that's Jesus. I did exactly everything the doctors told me to, word for word. They were so upset with me losing weight so fast that they thought I wasn't eating. I was eating more than what they told me to. Right? So you, you have to imagine what happens to a guy who already is addicted to sex, porn, lust, and women when the women see him skinny. They all come coming. And for a guy who's addicted to it, that's his drug. Game on. But this time it was different. This time it hurt me. And I didn't get it. This time, it broke everything in my soul. So now I have this relationship sort of with the Father. And I start begging him, well, I don't know how you're going to do it, but I need you to fix this because I can't. I can't come clean. I can't say a word. Can you just take it? Because if you're the thing and the God and the person that everybody tells me you are, and you've performed all these miracles that I've seen with my own two eyes, then you can do this for me. (laughs) But he didn't. At least not in my way. So I kept digging deeper and going further and digging deeper until I was begging and pleading on a daily basis. Six years ago, six years ago, seven years ago, some years ago, more than five I got really drunk one night having a conversation with another woman and I fell asleep with my phone unlocked and open. And in that conversation, I told this woman I loved her. 
And then my Miss Angie found it. Now, up until this point, every time I got caught, it was my job and my real ability to turn it back and make it her fault. Because not only had I grown up a liar, but also a manipulator. And I would turn everything. It was always her fault. It didn't matter if I spent the money, her fault. It didn't matter if I cheated. It was her fault. I didn't fulfill my needs. But in that moment, she saw something different because in that moment, there was a broken man who finally saw the door that he'd been praying for. And at that point in time, if I'm being 100% humble, open, and transparent, I could have cared less if we got divorced. I just wanted help. Well, I fell to my knees, and I didn't even say I was sorry, but I looked her dead in the eyes, and I said, please help me. And I tried to explain why I did it. And I tried to explain the truth behind all of it, that I was addicted to it, that I couldn't walk away from it, that it had such a hold of me. Well, so hard part, somewhat over. Within a week's time, we went and got help. Okay? And this is where it all changed. This is where five steps that were given to us gave us the ability to sit in front of you, gave us the ability to live a new lease on life that promised victory, and gave us the ability to know that we had been through all of that exactly for this. So we went to a friend and a pastor, and we'd done that in the past. And this time it was different because... We were submitted. Immediately, the first time we met with this pastor, we were able to completely wash away the past, let the hurt and the pain out in that moment, and start brand new. And he said five words to us right off the bat that would set the tone for the rest of our lives. These five words have become so ingrained in us through practice, through action. That like I said last week, we love each other so much we can't stand each other half the time. And that's the most amazing part. Is when you are so addicted to somebody constantly that when we get pulled apart from each other, when I take off on a motorcycle trip, I'm having fun, but I'm miserable. I could never take a gig playing on the road again because she wouldn't be with me. I am so in love with this woman that it's gross. So those five steps, those five words that he gave to us may not make a lot of sense, but we're going to go through each one pretty quickly and, and give you an explanation of how we, how we got through it. We may go a little bit long today. I apologize, but we'll get through it quick. Those five words were rekindling, reconciliation, accountability, correctability, and forgiveness. Now, while we're going to apply these directly to our marriage, this works within any relationship. These practices are spiritual and create that spiritual foundation in which you can stand firm upon. So when you do fall, and we may, like I said, nobody's safe. We have a firm spiritual foundation to fall on. We've taken our pyramid and taken the point and shot it straight up in the air. So let's talk about rekindling. Are you ready? Can you do this? You good? You nervous? You scared? Yeah, it's okay. (laughs) 
she's really nervous. She can sing in front of you, but yeah, good luck talking. Anyway, I'm kidding. Rekindling. So right out of the gate, one of the first things our counselor had, I do, had us do was go on a date. It sounds dumb, right? She's mad at me, wants to kill me. I'm mad at me, want to kill me. But we pushed it all aside. We prayed in that moment that we were starting blank, fresh, anew. So we went on a date. And it was ridiculous. She went to her mom's house, and I borrowed my mom's car, and I went and picked her up. Like a real deal first-time date. And we both felt ridiculous because we were 15 years, well, 14 years into the marriage. And we've pushed through it. But by the end of that evening, <clears throat> we were smiling and giggling like we were 14 years ago. We, we, we began to practice the act of love as opposed to the feelings of love. We didn't understand exactly what we were doing, but we were putting into practice actions that were going to change our lives. It didn't happen immediately, although it did happen fast. But we put in the practice these steps and actions. We made a plan and a pact with each other to stick to it. That we had created a covenant marriage and we weren't going to let it fail for nothing. Now, as I said last week, that's not every situation. We're not saying that it's always 100% going to be perfect and you can fix every marriage. If it's abusive, then you have to get help. Again, I'll say, hear me. Anybody under the sound of my voice, if you're in a situation that's abusive, you have to get help. That's mental abuse, physical abuse, all of it. Okay. We also made a decision to touch and agree on everything. We'd never done that. 14 years of being married, and we'd never prayed together. We went to church, and we prayed corporately, sort of, maybe. Neither one of us. We pre- your mic, the mic goes up here. You got this. We pretended. But under a challenge from our counselor, every night we would hold hands and pray. And then every time we would be in corporate prayer, we would hold hands. And if you watch real closely to this day, if we pray, we hold hands or we touch each other in some way. Because when two shall touch and agree, it shall be so. Now, was this awkward? Yeah. Talk to people trying to pray together that all don't know how to pray. Just stuttering and stammering, and Jesus, I love you, and okay, thank you, know, all the stuff. Stammers, the stutters, but we powered through it, and we got it. So the scripture we're going to, I want to tie to this is 2 Timothy 1.6. I remind you to fan in the flame. See, fan in the flame. When you rekindle a fire, you have to blow on it. You have to fan in the flame the gifts of God. If we don't put them in the practice, blow on them, rekindle them on a daily basis, what happens? The fire will go out. I remind you to fan in the flame the gifts of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hand. And then James 4, 8. Move your heart closer to God, and he will come close to you. I know. He's, Andy, Andy's got it, but you got to talk into it. So our next, our next step was reconciliation. This is really cool. These five words were spoken over us in an instant. There wasn't a plan that this counselor already had. He didn't know in the time, he knows now, but the Holy Spirit had lined out a plan that was pretty amazing. His next word was reconciliation. Now, if you look the word reconciliation up in the Greek, it means literally to change completely. 
And then our Webster's Dictionary tells us that it's the restoration of friendly relations. So in order to reconcile, we had to restore our friendly relations. So what that meant was no harboring anger and no harboring shame. Is even though we might have not understood it, we had to let go and let God take that and put victory in the situation. We had to force ourselves to make choices that we didn't necessarily want in the flesh to make. We had to make each day a new slate. We had to continually try to fan into that flame. So there we have Colossians 1, 21 through 22. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil ways, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's body through his death. See, we are all reconciled, given the ability to have friendly relations, but better yet, given the ability to be changed completely because of the work that happened on the cross. See, when when you can grasp that action of love that the Father did for us by sending his Son to die for us so that we may have reconciled resurrection, all things are possible. And then we have 1 Corinthians 13.5. Again, the hard one, love keeps no record of wrong. See, that's really the thing we have the problem with, all of us, myself included. I have to pray away the records of wrong that I keep almost on a daily basis. It's inherent in our human flesh nature to keep track of what's come against us and harbor ill will toward it. It's it's not easy. Next step. Do you have something to say there? You good? You sure? You good? Okay. Accountability. Now, this is a hard one, men. Every one of you in this room and every one of you under the sound of my voice needs to be accountable. You need to have somebody to hold you accountable. Jamie has men in his life that speak life into him and hold him accountable. I have men in my life that speak life into me and hold me accountable. I'm accountable to her. Before I go any further, this is an evil device. Men, if your wife or your partner does not know the passwords to your phone, your computer, all of your accounts, then you're doing it wrong. Hear me. If you're living a double life inside of this technology, you will be found out. The wonderful age of technology, there is no secret. Ask me how I know. And I'm good with technology. Really good with it. But when you have a secret, it will always be found out. So I had to become accountable and do something that I hated was give her this. And say, change it. Now we both know it. I had to put software on my computer to keep me away from things so that if I did go to them, it would notify five men and her. Right? I also had to have men in my life that had the ability and the wherewithal to call me every couple of days at first and then every couple of weeks at first and say, hey, how are you doing? 
Did you, did you talk to another? Did you look at another woman today? I had to allow myself to become accountable and honest. But going further, she had to learn accountability. Yeah. Good. So, I mean, that's, that's weird for somebody to think that I had to be the one to learn accountability, but I really did because, you know, you, you, when your friends and your family find out what your husband did to you, then, you know, they like to talk. They like to talk to you. They like to say things to you and beat him down. So I had to be accountable to the Holy Spirit, really, have him hold me accountable to block out the negative things that people said to me about him because all that did was bring back things that I was trying to not hold against him. So um, I just really had to be careful who I listened to and also had to learn how to hold him accountable up until that point, I was um, very intimidated by him. So I had a really hard time ever confronting him. I would hold it in and hold it in. Oh, he did this to me. Oh, he did this to me. Until it would just explode. Then I would confront him. We would fight. 45 minutes later, it was done. And we would go on about our life. And then it would happen again and again. So I had to learn how to approach him in a respectful way and in a consistent way. Yeah. <clears throat> so the two scriptures that we, that we leaned on that come out on this are Galatians 5.25. Since we live by the Spirit, let's keep in step with the Spirit. Because when we're in step with the Spirit, he'll tug on you and keep you accountable. He'll poke you until you're so mad at him. Again, you got to ask me how I know. He bugs me to death when I'm about to do something dumb. But am I choosing to listen to it? Choosing to allow him to hold me accountable. And then Hebrews 12, 11. Now, all discipline seems to be painful at the time. Yet later it will produce a transformation of character, bringing a harvest of righteousness and peace of this you who yield it. Accountability hurts even when you're not doing anything wrong. Pride is a big deal. Humility is a big deal in our flesh. When a brother calls me out to this day and says, how are you doing? Have you done anything wrong? It still hurts. But it needs to happen. We have to submit to accountability. Followed by accountability is correctability. If you can't be held accountable, you can't be held correctable. Biggest thing for me with correctability was really learning what the Holy Spirit was saying to me, is letting him speak. Because like I said, he's going to jump right up in the middle of everything that you do. And even if you aren't really understanding it and really knowing it's him, he's still there. At the time of salvation, and I, my belief in it, you can agree or disagree, from the time of birth, he's there. We're his creation if we choose to listen or not. Um, and then again, that humility and that pride. And then allowing her to hold me correctable. When I let her hold me accountable to say without anger, yeah, I, I did something stupid. To learn from it and to move forward. And honestly, I mean, just 
just knowing that I had that freedom to, I mean, I hate to say check up on him, but you know, that's what, that's what I was doing. <clears throat> but just knowing that I had that freedom to go and do it, the, the need to do it fell, fell away. Like it was very quickly where I, I didn't feel like I needed to go. Who are you talking to? And it's, it's not something that just stops. When things get better, it's not something that just ends. Just a year, year and a half ago, I was doing something on my phone. And it just happened coincidentally that I shut it off and threw it down on the couch right as she walked into the room. I had no idea she was walking up. It just was all coincidental. And then we went back five years real yeah, I mean, quick. I, I saw him do that, and it just you know, flashed in my head. That's the way he used to act when he was doing things that he shouldn't be doing. And, I mean, he wasn't, but. She said, what were you doing on your phone? Yeah. And I said, here. All you got to do is open it. And I, don't, I, didn't even, I didn't even. Then I just opened it and showed her. But that's the point. <clears throat> is it, it doesn't stop. It's not something that you stop doing even when it gets better. I expect her to hold me accountable till I take my last breath. Almost spilled water. In Proverbs 27, 17, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. That's part of correctability, built in with accountability. Okay, now the hard one. Are you ready? And then our last, our last step, <clears throat> forgiveness. And this is last because it was the hardest. <laughs> um. Forgiveness... <clears throat> You wouldn't think it would have to begin with me, but it did. It, it should have began with me, but it didn't actually happen until much later. Just actually until I came to Grace Life. I was still living under a mindset that my cross to bear as a pastor, that a man that was called to preach, sing, and lead worship, was to carry my burdens and my mistakes on my shoulders as my cross. To remind myself every day of the hurt and the pain that I caused in people's lives. Not just hers. I was a terror to all around me. Family, friends, new acquaintances, anybody, bosses. <laughs> Good luck handling me. I thought in order to properly teach about it, I had to relive it every day. That I had to remember the tears on her face. What happens when you carry something that heavy? I had to learn how to forgive myself. Because I didn't understand that even though, yeah, Christ died on the cross for my sins and I was forgiven and redeemed and yeah, that all makes sense and I can recite it to you. I was teaching it on Sunday mornings and helping recovering addicts learn it. But I'm over here dying every day, thinking that was it. It wasn't until I came to Grace Life that I learned through a counseling session with Nathan Blouse when the Holy Spirit spoke right up in the middle of it and screamed at me, I just want you to let go and let me have it. When I saw a manifestation of Jesus sitting across my kitchen table crying for me, telling me that he loved me, 
that he forgave me and that I needed to learn how to do it for myself. That if he was man enough to do it, then I should be man enough to do it. That's an exact quote. I also had to learn how to accept it. Because up until that point, I didn't know how to accept her forgiveness. Her forgiveness came kind of quick because she made a choice to do so. What? You want to fight? I think I'm stealing, stealing her thunder. <laughs> Accidentally stole her thunder. Go ahead. I mean, he'll say it better than I will, for sure. Uh, but, yeah, I, I get asked all the time, how in the world do you forgive your husband for doing that to you? But um, the truth is, is that I couldn't. Um, I definitely couldn't do it. So the first thing that I had to do was open up my heart to the idea of it, you know, no, I have not forgiven him, but I can see that that can happen. Um, and then, obviously, the next thing is that I had to ask for help. You know, um, Jesus is the mighty forgiver, so who better to, to ask? So I just started asking, um, God, help me to forgive him. Um, he, he touched on the scripture of keeping no record of wrong and you can't do that as a human all the way because we have a memory um, so I just had to ask for those memories to get smaller and my feelings for him to get bigger and <clears throat> I, I specifically remember waking up every day and choosing I didn't feel it but I chose and I would say it out loud I forgive him and I would wake up the next day. I forgive him. And the next day. And it felt like I was lying to myself. I'm, I'm going to be honest. It felt like a lie. Um, but I just kept doing it. I forgive him. I choose to forgive him. And eventually, as he's been talking about, you know, the, the, the choices that we make, the emotions and feelings follow them. So eventually, the lie felt a little smaller. Um, and a little smaller, and then I woke up and I felt like I had forgiven him. Um, so I think those are the, the two things that you have to realize. You can't do it on your own, and you have to open your heart to the idea of it. Um, you know, I think it's very typical in those situations that somebody wants to know why, have all the answers, and uh, you, may, you may never really get an answer as to why somebody hurts you. So... Um, you just have to trust that God's going to take that hurt from you. And, and what's important is to not take it back because, you know, it, it's sometimes it's easier to surrender something and then something comes along. Like 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 he said a couple years ago when, when I came in and saw him with his phone and he tossed it and it triggered a memory, I could have easily easily let that derail all of the progress, progress that we had made. Um, so you just have to make sure that uh, you just lean in and understand where the other person's coming from. And <clears throat> I think that it, he touched on you know, him not really knowing what love was, and I had to really understand that because I felt like 
in, in the environment that I grew up in, I had a pretty good handle on what love was, like, like he said. So I really had to say to myself when I would say, you know, how could he do that to, to me? He tells me he loves me all the time, and I really feel like he loves me. So how can he act like that? How can he do those things to me? So, um, you know, as I just kept asking those questions and seeking help from the Father, he just kept revealing he he does love you. He just has a twisted view of what love is because of how he grew up. Um, so I had to understand that and be empathetic towards that. And it was just amazing how quickly I got to see the man that he was becoming unfold. Um, it, it was like he was a, a, new, a new person every day. And I'm so thankful for that. So forgiveness, <clears throat> it's hard, but like I said last week, and I've said in a lot of the devotions, love is full of forgiveness. If the Father didn't love us, he wouldn't have forgiven us. Am I wrong? So if he can do that, why can't we? Right, and that's, that's another thing that he kind of revealed to me was, you know, I've hurt people, I'm sure. I don't I couldn't know, couldn't really think of a specific thing. I can't think of a specific thing right now, but I've hurt people. So I expect them to forgive me. Is what he did. I mean, I know it seems like it's a lot worse than what I could have done to someone else, but in the grand scheme of things, hurt is hurt and forgiveness is forgiveness. So if God can forgive me, for what I've done to other people, then I have to, in turn, extend that forgiveness to everyone. Just as he, he extends it to us. So that's the five steps that we walked through on a daily basis for years that got us to this point. But there was a sixth step that we had to add, that I had to personally add myself. And that, that sixth step is um, putting first things first. Now, I had a cool graphic that I built, and we've got issues, but think of a circle. I'm not as cool as Jamie. I don't have a whiteboard, or I'd draw it for you. But think of a circle, and each outer edge of the circle, one side's Angie, the other side is me, right? And we're both trying to get to the center of the circle, but all we know is the perimeter. See, see on the perimeter is, is our cultural priorities. Money, sex, drugs, rock and roll, right? Happiness, pleasure, what the world, the culture tells us that we need, right? But right smack dab in the middle of that circle is the big G, right? Is my homie Jesus, is God, is Holy Spirit, is the triune, right there in the center. So when we put first things first, because how many know God's a God of firsts? So when we put first things first, and we put him first, him first in all things that we do, him first over her, him first over mom, him first over dad, him first over everything, and we both start seeking him first, and we both start submitting to him first, then all of a sudden we get to break off that railroad track that's a circle, 
and start four-wheeling towards the center. And the more we put him first, and the more we submitted, and the more we rekindled, and the more we reconciled, and the more we prayed together, and the more we forced out things that hurt, the closer we got to him. And then as the closer we got to him, the more he brought us in. And the more he brings us in, the more he showers us with his love. And we learn his forgiveness. And we learn his humility. And we learn his mercy. And we learn his grace upon grace upon grace. 1 Corinthians 13, 1, 2. Now, 1 Corinthians, I could probably write a book on 1 Corinthians 13. Maybe I will someday. But it's powerful from the first letter to the last period. It basically says, in my version, in the Frank International Version, the FNIV, it says, it doesn't matter what good works I've done. No. If I've never truly loved, then I've literally gotten nowhere. So this morning, that's our story. And like I said, there's no secrets. If you want to know more, I'll tell you in person. Or you can read, read my story. But we felt it was time. Holy Spirit laid this month's sermon series on my heart because it was time for a church that we were leading to know the truth. I've never hidden it from you. I've alluded to some things. I've not been afraid to tell you, but the time's now. The time is now because I see such hurt and anguish and love in noun use in our world in front of me on a daily basis. I see marriages falling apart. I see people running from each other, friendships breaking over masks, over silly little stupid things that in the end of the day don't matter. I don't, at the end of the day, none of this matters. At the end of the day, there's only one thing that matters, and that's Jesus. So I want to read one more section of Scripture before we close out. And, and this is Ephesians 4.16. This is a book. This is where the sermon title Love Letter came from. Obviously, it's a book. I don't know why I had to tell you that. For anybody who's never seen one, this is a book. It has pages. Angie bought me this book right after I had my surgery. Uh, a few months later, I'd have to have another surgery because when you lose weight that fast, or, or your gallbladder says, peace, I'm out. So they had to take my gallbladder out. This time, I didn't wake up so happy. I woke up from the surgery wrecked by pain. And I did everything I could to not take the, opi the opiates they were giving me, but I had to. It got to the point where I had to. So I spent a week numb from these opiates, reading the Bible. Don't, don't, I'm not saying go get high and read the Bible. I wasn't high. Maybe get high and go read the Bible if you have that issue. <laughs> Jesus, do your thing right now. My point is, I was able to do something that I'd never been able to do before. My mind got calmed in a way that it had never been calmed, and I started reading the Bible and reading devotion, and then I read a whole book, cover to cover, in a day. I've never done that. And I would start filling the pages of this book. And then I would go to, to, to sermons and, and, and hear them, and they were making sense. And I was jumping up on the platform because I was getting led by Holy Spirit to do so. Things were weird, let me tell you. But on February 14th, holy, 
that's Valentine's Day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> On Valentine's Day in 2016, it's a 14. We're not having an argument. <laughs> February 14, 2016, I write Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. And I've forgotten. I go back to this book every, every so often, maybe like once a year, and I'll open it and I'll read. There's some letters in here that I've written to God that are not nice. There are things in here that, that maybe one day I'll share with you. But I wrote this, and this wrecked me. And I want to leave you with this today before we, before we leave. And I, I, I thank you for hanging out a little bit longer than normal. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. In light of all this, this is the message version. In light of all this, here's what I want you to do. While I am locked up here as a prisoner for the master, I want you to run, get out there, walk. Better yet, run on the road God has called you to travel. So Paul's saying, get up off your butt and get at it. And that's how I looked at it. All right, let's do this. I don't want any of you sitting on your hands. I don't want any of you strolling off down some path that goes nowhere. Mark that you do this with humility and discipline, not in fits and starts, but steadily pouring yourselves out for each other in acts of love, alert at noticing differences, and quick at mending fences. You notice what it said there. Pour yourself out for each other in acts of love, quickly notice the differences and quickly mend those fences. It didn't say think about it. Paul didn't say pray real hard about it. He said quickly. That's action. That's love. He says acts of love. Quick at mending fences. You were all called. Now, this is, this is where it gets good. This is the important part. This is the important part that wrecks me. You were all called to travel on the same road in the same direction, so stay together. Stay together, both outwardly and inwardly. You have one master, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father of all who rules over all, works through all, is present in all, and this is, the, this is the kicker. I love Paul. He was like Jesus. He carried around microphones just to drop. Everything you are and think and do. Come on, remember this. Everything that you are and you think and you do is permeated with oneness. So that's where we'll leave it. Permeated with oneness. Permeated with putting the first things first permeated with trying to rebuild our hearts. Because in the end, if we don't understand the love of our Father, then we're setting ourselves up for failure. Father, we come to you today thankful that, personally, I'm thankful that you gave me the strength to not boohoo like a baby or puke. Thank you for being right up in the middle of this. Thank you for giving Angie the strength to be up here and tell this story. But, Father, we're more thankful than anything that you've chosen us to live this life and speak of it. What seems like a curse is now a blessing in our lives because, yes, it caused hurt and pain and anguish, but now through that hurt and pain and anguish, we get to help. 
Father, I pray that from this day forward that we scream this message from the top of our lungs at every rafter that we can find. The message of actions of love, your grace and mercy, and your forgiveness. Father, if there's anybody under the sound of my voice in this room that is having a hard time with any sort of forgiveness, with any sort of aspect of love, Father, I pray right now in a physical way that you lay your hand and you begin a process that changes them forever. If they're online and under the sound of my voice, I pray you infect the room like an aroma that smells sweeter than anything they've ever touched, smelled, or tasted. Father, if this is years down the road, as we know, this message ain't going nowhere. If this, years down the road, somebody comes across this on YouTube and needs help, Father, I pray you meet them right in the middle of that mess. Father, there's nothing harder than forgiving ourselves. Even when we don't know we've done the wrong. Even when we've been wronged, it's hard to forgive ourselves for harboring the hate, the hurt, and the anguish. Father, I pray that you give us all strength to put the first things first, to run our races with perseverance, setting aside our differences, and being chasing you. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Father, we're so thankful. Amen.